Hello, how are you? Good to see you. Dímelo cantando, chico. La familia, gato, perro, la vecina. It's time to reconvene at the scene with the one, the only, the Miami God. Hello. Hello. Can you Hi. hear me? Yes, I can. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Fantastic. How are we doing today? Uh, I'm doing great. I really am. Uh, I just sent you uh, a text saying I was excited to be doing this, looking forward to it. So I'm really excited to be on here with you. Oh, my gosh. No, I'm so excited that you're on and that you agreed to do this. I think that, you know, you are such an influential person and you are someone who really has a lot of wisdom and lots of great things to share and talk about. So thank you so much for being on today's episode. I'm so excited to talk to you about so many exciting things and things that are really important and that people I think need to hear, especially in today's day and age. Correct. Absolutely. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself. We're speaking to the man, the myth, the legend, Lowell (laughs) Williams. He is a director. He is a playwright. He is an actor. And he is one of Miami's finest artists. So I'm so excited to have you on here today. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, first thing I want to say for your listeners to know is that you were one of my students. Yes, at Miami Dade College. So that's mm-hmm. how we met. Uh, mm-hmm. I taught you uh, theater appreciation, if I remember correctly. Uh, I think it was acting. Or acting, okay. A- acting one. We did acting one together. Acting one. Okay. Mm-hmm. That, I couldn't remember because I, I taught both acting and theater appreciation. Right, right. Um, so, yeah. So I wanted everybody to know that that's how we met and that's what our <laughs> connection is. Yes. Um, well, as you know, my name is Lowell Williams. Um I'm uh, retired from teaching now, at least at the collegiate level. Uh, I'm focusing now on playwriting, which is what I'm doing at the moment that uh, I logged on to this podcast. I was in the (laughs) middle of rewriting a play. Uh, So I've taught at, uh, I'm originally from Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, A little bit of history. I grew up under... Jim Crow. I went to legally segregated schools in Louisville, Mm. Kentucky till I was in the seventh grade. Uh, When uh, the Supreme Court decision came down, uh, Brown versus Board of Education, I uh, ended up in high school uh, uh, due to, quote, integration, where I was the only black in my high school. Wow. uh, (laughs) Which was quite an experience. Um, but it was a good, great experience and something I um, look back on and uh, appreciate the fact that uh, I was in that situation. It, it taught me a lot. Uh, from there, I went to uh, college in Kent State University where I was a biology psychology major. Uh, I was supposed to be a dentist. That's why I was in um, biology and supposed to go into pre-dentistry. I'm telling you that in your listeners, especially if you're young listeners, that where you think you are, where you think you're going to be, where you are today is not necessarily where you're going to be 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. Mm-hmm. So 
be learn to be adaptable. That's one piece of advice I can give people. Uh, from there, I went on, stayed at Kent State, got my master's degree there. Uh, anybody who knows the history of Kent State, I was there in uh, the 60s when uh, the National Ohio National Guard came on campus. It was during the Vietnam War and killed four students who were protesting the war. I'm wow. saying that to let you know what protesting was like back then and what was going on. So what's going on today in terms of protests, the Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. shootings, et cetera, et cetera, is not new. Um, and I'm big on learning our history. Uh, in fact, one of the plays I'm writing about deals with getting Black history into American education, American history, is part of American history and not a separate course. Um, let's see what else I mean, you might want to. So now, as I say, I'm playwriting. Most of the plays I'm writing now deal with social justice issues. And let me go specifically now to one of the plays that I'm most excited about that I'm writing. Uh, deals with the LGBTQ uh, community. Mm-hmm. I am, I guess, what is referred to, I'm learning terminology. As I'm writing this play, I'm learning terminology. Uh, I will also say I contacted you when I was first starting to write this play. Right. Your feedback and help right. uh, on starting to write this play. I've come a long way since we had that talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've gotten, uh, oh, let me say, I'm also one of four local playwrights in mm-hmm. Miami that are part of the Miami-Dade co arts and culture departments playwright development program and so i go with this four three other local wonderful playwrights where we give feedback to each other we have a mentor her name is kia kothron who is an established author lives in new york she comes down and for three times a year it's a two-year program unfortunately we haven't been able to meet this past year or so because of the pandemic so we've Mm -hmm. been still we've been zooming our meetings Right. Um, and part of that program, I get to go to Minneapolis Playwright Center, which is one of the uh, most prestigious playwright centers in America, to further work on this play. I'm, this is the play that I'm going to take up there to further work on, because my goal is to hopefully get this play produced. That's why we write plays, not to have them sit in your computer, but mm-hmm. have people see them. Of course. Um and you may want to, I would rather me than just talk about my play, maybe you want to ask me some questions about the play and my goals and why I'm writing it, why I want to write it. Uh, Absolutely. I think that's about all I want to say about myself right now in terms of an introduction. So um, why don't you, I would rather you ask me questions and let me respond. <laughs> Of course, all the talking. No problem. I mean, again, we're gonna do lots of talking today. There's gonna be lots of great conversations had, but yeah, absolutely. So we definitely met a few years back, and it was so amazing because this was in—I wouldn't say the beginning of my acting career, but definitely when I really started polishing and training to really get to where I am today. And, you know, to have crossed paths with this man, I think, is something that was abs- absolutely crucial and absolutely necessary to happen because there was just so many great things that have continued to happen since then. And so years later down the line, this was a few years back, 
when he reached out to me um, and he asked me, he was like, hey, look, I'm writing a play and I would love to get your feedback. This was a moment where I was like, wow, like to have gotten to this point and now that you're asking me like for this feedback when, you know, I've looked up to you and I've always thought like so, so many great things was something that was, you know, it, it's a really cool moment in time to just be like, okay, cool. Like we're here, like this is where it is. And so I think that that goes into my first question and how theater is, you know, n all around us, or it's it's something that is essential, but not always appreciated or not always seen or heard. So why is it so important? Why is theater, you know, essential? Well, I, uh, you sent me some questions before for me to think about. And mm -hmm. so I've been thinking about those questions, and this is one of them. Mm -hmm. Theater is important because, um, first of all, we are social animals. Human beings are social animals. And I say that all you need to do is think about what's been going on this past year. We've had to social distance and people are getting all kinds of emotional, psychological reactions to the fact that they can't see family, they can't see friends, uh, they can't touch others. Uh, I went to a play two weeks ago First time back at Miami uh, Main Street Players out in Miami Lakes. Mm. And they're doing a play. I'm going to give them a little plug. They're doing a play right now called Wolf and Badger. The reason I'm giving, a, 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 giving that about them is one of my former students, not at Miami-Dade, but in some of my private teaching, is doing his first paid role in this play. He's just graduated from Crop High School. Mm. And so... The point I want to make is that day was their, this is their first time back doing live theater after the pandemic. And when the director and uh, theater uh, uh, director came out and artistic director came out before the play, he talked about how excited he was and the theater was to be back live. And to show you the importance of theater to people, the audience stood up and gave a standing ovation saying wow. how much they appreciated live theater being back, that they could mm -hmm. come into theater, even though we wore masks and we they fixed the seats so we were socially distanced. Just to be there with other people was a thing. So that's one that showed me in real time how important theater is to people. Right. And you can see they, they've got all kinds of things about Broadway coming back and the shows are selling mm -hmm. tickets already. Hamilton is already sold out when they come mm -hmm. back in September. So if you go across the country, you can see how people are itching to get back to not socially distance. And one of the places we really can't, well, we can, but social distance hurts is in the theater. And it's right. also where we learn about the importance of theater and being with other people. So that's my first thing about the importance of theater. It's, it's good for our mental health. Okay, yeah. It's good for our mental, emotional health. What else is theater? Uh, one of the questions you asked was, what is the purpose of theater in today's society? Yeah. Well, uh, you, you had acting with me, but you didn't have theater appreciation. But one of the things I taught in theater appreciation is theater has two main functions. 
Mm-hmm. And most of us, most people, most of your listeners probably know one of them. And that is you go to the theater for entertainment. Right. But what most people don't think about is the other just as important function is to, as I say, to enlighten us. Right. Uh, uh, other words that you could uh, relate to that are to educate us. Mm-hmm. So I think a great deal can be learned about who you are, who we are as human beings from going to the theater. Because when you go to the theater, what do you see on stage? Mm-hmm. You don't, you, yeah, they're actors, but they're actors portraying what? Characters. And those characters, mm-hmm. if the actor is doing his job, are they are portraying human beings. Mm-hmm. And so what you're looking at is the behavior or sometimes the the good you're looking at the good and bad behavior of human beings mm-hmm. and what can you learn from watching what other people do uh i have a big thing about the fact that human beings one of our biggest promises we don't learn from our mistakes it doesn't seem mm-hmm. uh, we seem to make the same big mistakes over and over and not really learn from them and right. I'm thinking theater may be a place where you can sit back and see other human beings having maybe some characteristics like you, maybe not completely like you, mm-hmm. but see, well, how do these characters solve their problem? I'll give you a specific example. I was sitting in the theater. Uh, I forget the play, but there was a married couple sitting next to me and the characters on stage were husband and wife. <laughs> and they're having an argument. And the, the the wife sitting next to me elbows her husband and say, you see, there you are. You never <laughs> listen to me. You look just like at him. Look at him. You never just like, you're always cutting me off. And I said, it was all I could do not to laugh out loud because we're in the theater. But I said, there it is. She's seeing him and her right. up there on stage. Right. And that's when you put the theater some of you up there. Mm-hmm. Um, one other anecdote I want to give that I was directing a play when I taught at UM uh, in the little black box theater. Mm-hmm. And it's a long title called The Trial of One Short-Sighted Black Woman versus Mammy Louise and Sofrita May. Mm-hmm. That's the mouthful. But the, what the play is really about is those two images, the black woman as either a Sofrita May, a concubine, uh, uh, the problem and the short-sighted black woman was a modern-day woman, black woman, who had hit the glass ceiling, so to speak. And so they're talking about this modern-day woman is suing in this make-believe trial the mm-hmm. images of the black woman as either a concubine or a mammy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she's fighting and she's exactly, and she's reached a glass ceiling. Well, there was a couple in the audience and this woman, uh, the, the wife in this case in the audience, identified with the, the, care, the title character, the one short-sighted black woman. She had gone as far, I forget what uh, um, company she worked for, but she had gone as high as she could go. And so she was identifying with this. Long story short, they text me, she and her husband, I got their information, and she texts me and basically said, because of your play, I've given up my, I quit my 
six-figure job. Wow. As a result of what she saw in this play. And I wrote, we talked and I said, I I didn't prevent this play. I want you to come to see it for you to give up your job. <laughs> right. But that shows you the effect theater can have on Of course. People. So I just give those two examples as uh, what theater can do. Uh, if you know your history, I don't know whether you know the, the song, uh, um, uh, not the Bolero. Uh, I just blocked it, but it was, uh, it's a song that repeat, uh, repeats this, this theme, this beginning theme. It'll come to a minute. Mm-hmm. But anyway, this song, uh, once put in the theater, it caused a riot in the mm. country. So just the music, just the music caused people to riot. Fear can have unbelievable effects on people. Right. Uh, one last example I want to give is I won an Obie Award. This is not about me bragging about what I've accomplished. but You, you, you can brag all you want. For people who don't know what an Obie is, it's similar to a Tony Award, but for doing work off-Broadway and off-Broadway theaters. And so the play I won, I shouldn't say I, my cast won, was in 1983 for a play called Popi Nongena. Mm. I was the only American in the play. The rest of the actors were from South Africa. Wow. And this was in 1983 during the period of people remember their history mm-hmm. was when uh, countries were starting to divest their money out of South Africa to protest apartheid. And so for instance, all of my fellow cast members in this play were exiled in America because they had done some anti-apartheid plays in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they were turned to be treasoners. They had mm-hmm. committed treason by doing theater. Wow. That shows you the power of theater. Yes. The South African government wanted to shut it down because it was going to cause them social justice uh, problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so I say during that play and at every night when we at curtain call, we would see people in the audience stand up and raise their fists, which was the, and we ended the play singing the South African National Anthem. And you would mm-hmm. see one or two and sometimes more uh, black people stand up in the audience and raise their hand in a fist over their head, which mm-hmm. was the... Uh, uh, sign of protest in South mm-hmm. Africa. Uh, long, what I'm trying to say is this play and others helped bring down apartheid and helped bring Nelson Mandela out of prison mm. to become the president of South Africa. You're talking about the power of theater and what mm-hmm. they can do. Yep. So those are, I think I've given you three examples of, yeah. of how theater works and what it can do to more than just entertain. It can enlighten and eventually inspire people to action. I I love it. And I 100% agree. And I'm glad that you kind of joined those two questions together because they do go hand in hand. Why is it important? What is the purpose? And I think that this was something that I learned actually in your class, um, that there is a suspension of disbelief. And mm-hmm. I was like, wow, you remember that. that. <laughs> I, I know. And I, it, that's something that resonated with me. And I was just like, what the hell is that? Like, what is the suspension of disbelief? And so for people who don't know, it's like when you're watching a show, you forget about 
all of your problems, everything that you have going on in your like real life, you're like, you immediately like block it out. You tune it out because you're so focused or you're so into the play or the movie or whatever it is that you're watching that you maybe you've never even met these people in your life. And now you feel like you've known them your entire life. And when they do like something stupid, you're like, oh, why did they do that? If like somebody dies, like you're like so hurt because you're so emotionally invested. Exactly. And that is what the suspension of disbelief is. It has a positive and a negative effect, but I think that it's so important because we have this in our real lives. We are going through these things where we do have these emotions, where we do have these interactions that you say that theater's so social. So this is something where suspension of disbelief is constantly happening in good ways and in bad ways. But it's so important because theater... What it's doing is it's telling stories. It's giving you life lessons. It is teaching you and showing you these things that resonate. It's teaching you music. It's teaching you history. It's teaching you so many things that you maybe don't see or you are kind of blind to. Like when you say that people go to theater and they're seeing people's actions or we're learning from the mistakes. We're seeing mistakes that humans constantly have made. And it's not really seen until it's in a plan we're observing and we are really becoming these critics when really in reality, all we're doing is we are imitating real life. Now we're doing it in a way that is being portrayed for people to understand and for it to carry the theme or the objective of the play or whatever it is that we are seeing and that we are, if we're actors, what we are, what we are exposing Right. Um, to to an audience. So I definitely think that, and you were talking about mental health and things like that, there's things that are just being shown in a different light where right. we really have to pay attention to these things. And theater is telling that story in a safe space because that's really where it is. Right. The, the story is already written. You know, there's nowhere that you can go inside, outside from it. So right. with that beauty and that chaos it's important to just sit down and just kind of be locked in for that hour, that those two hours, however long the play is, to just sink, sink in and forget about your problems, forget about your own opinions, forget about what it is, and just listen, just observe, or just be one with, with the story right. to really get a different perspective and to really go outside of what you are normally what you normally believe in or the way right. that you were raised or the way that, you know, society tells you to be this theater bring, puts you outside of that box and puts the actors and the, and the playwrights and everybody, it just puts everybody outside of a narrative that right. is so common and so status quo that it's, it's essential. It's important. That's the purpose to make you have these broader ideas and broader views of the world and to show you that it's not always black and white that there is so much in between. As we and know so, that, that title, there are many shades of gray. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And so this kind of ties into my next question, which well, is did, why, why we should care about theater. Why should we right. care about it? Well, before I answer that question, I just for your listeners who may not completely understand uh, that concept of suspension of disbelief, mm-hmm. I ask them, if you've ever been to the theater or watched a movie and you mm-hmm. laugh out loud or you cry, you have suspended your disbelief because you're crying at seeing something that's not real. Right. So you put on suspension of your belief that what you're watching is real, which then allows you to have that emotional reaction you have, whether right. it's laughter, 
or sadness. Mm-hmm. So I just want to say that that's a little teaching moment. Yeah, I mean, quite yet. Uh, yes, you said what was absolutely fabulous. Now, what was the, the next question? I'm sorry. I it's okay. Us. So why why should we care about theater? Well, for all the reasons we just said, what it can teach us, mm-hmm. that it is a source of us fine getting entertained and getting a respite from the daily onslaught of, <laughs> of navigating through life and mm-hmm. all the things that, uh, as they say in uh, um Hamlet, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that mm. Hamlet talks about. We are constantly, there's, the, there's an example. Shakespeare said 400 years ago, we suffer, Hamlet was suffering the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Mm-hmm. Now that line of uh, dialogue tells us 400 years later, what are we dealing with? Right. Hey, the pandemic is a sling and arrow of outrageous fortune. Uh-huh. <laughs> you see uh, a car accident is a sling and error of outrageous fortune. Right. Not having enough money to get your prescription medication is mm-hmm. a sling and error of outrageous fortune. Mm-hmm. You and many wa- listening can go on and on now with examples of slings of outrageous fortune that have been hurled at them uh, now and through the years. And we're right. dealing with that. So in terms of... Um, what theater uh, can do, that's one of the things, and why we need it. Yeah. We need it to, um, for some very specific reasons. And I'm thinking about the five plays that I've written. And when I say written, they're not completed. They're still in a writing notes. I'm still in the rewriting phase. I probably will be rewriting until somebody finally produces one of my plays. Mm-hmm. But I want to give you and the listeners the uh, topics on which the five plays I've written mm-hmm. in answer to your question about the importance. Right. The first play I wrote was called Pure Love. And it is about, uh, it's loosely based on <laughs> Romeo and Juliet. Mm. But it's about a young black man uh, in high school about to graduate, um, great student has two scholarships, one to Harvard and one to, um, to uh, an HBCU. Mm. And uh, his mother wants him, of course, to go uh, to Howard. Um, and uh, he also, he's a virgin and he has a girlfriend. We find out later in the play that his girlfriend, who looks like she's white, actually is mixed. She has a black mother and a white father. But the play deals with the issues of skin color. Mm. And we see all kinds of interracial relationships now. But there was a time when not too long ago, in fact, in the 60s, uh, when in the state of Virginia, it was against the law to be married interracially. Mm-hmm. And you could, uh, what's the name of the couple? Uh, the Lovings. That was the, the, their last name. He mm. was white. She was black. They came into their house in the middle of the night, uh, pulled them out of bed and arrested them. Their crime was they were married to each other. Wow. So knowing that history, I started to write this play taking place now where we're still dealing with skin color and mm-hmm. skin, to, not just color, but tones. Yes. If you, uh, you are... Um, from the, the uh, Spanish Latin community. Right. 
I know, even though I'm not, I'm uh, African, well, I'm Black American, I'm Black, mm -hmm. but I do know that in the Spanish community, there are colorism issues. Oh, for sure. And when I say that, people say, what are you talking about? I said, well, I want to get very specific. I mean, you might get some feedback <laughs> with mm -hmm. this podcast in Miami. Yeah, well, that's, I've yeah. learned that, and people can come back, and, and I would love to have a conversation with about it, Right. That in the Cuban community, colorism is a big thing. Oh, yeah. That's so the darker you are, just like in America, the darker you are, the lower you are on the totem pole. Mm -hmm. And the lighter you are, the higher you are on the totem pole. Mm -hmm. That, well, I'm not going to use bad language since we're on a podcast, but that BS, <laughs> that BS also happens in the black community. You know, yeah. if you're yeah. light skinned and got what we call good hair, which means straight hair, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you are better than somebody with dark skin and nappy hair. Facts. Uh, I have I have locks now. And the lady that does my locks, her her we call her queen, and her motto is happy to be nappy. Mm -hmm. You know. And so I've learned, I grew up, as I say, in segregation where I used to get short haircuts. And I realized a lot of that, how we black people wear their hair, especially women, has to do with racism related to what your hair is. Right. There was a time when a black woman could not go for a job as a bank teller if she had dreadlocks. Mm. Yeah. And the lighter she was, it would be better if she would have more likely to get the job. Well, those are the kind of things that I want to talk about in my plays and I talked about in this. Of course. Class. Yeah. I'm going on to the next play, which was called, I titled Coming Home. And it is about a man who is, uh, as the play starts, is coming home after being in prison for 15 years for a crime he didn't commit. Wow. So this play deals with the criminal justice issue and race. Mm hmm the third one um, I wrote, um, let me see, which one was that? I'm, I'm trying to remember all the titles. Right. Um, it was Coming Home. Oh, uh, I'm writing one press. Uh, and then, of course, the one I told you about, consulted with you about, is the LGBT community. Mm -hmm. And that one is set up. I have a transgender character who's in her 20s, and it is uh, two nights before she's going in for her surgery to transform from uh, male to female. And mm -hmm. she's going to get what we call, what is called bottom surgery. Mm -hmm. And she is, she is interracial. Her father is black and her mother is white. Mm -hmm. What I've done is I've uh, flipped the script, so to speak, from what we would probably normally expect. The black father is very supportive of her mm -hmm. getting the getting the uh, uh, operation. The white mother is not. Mm -hmm. So throughout her years growing up, when she was dealing with dysphoria and all those uh, issues, mm -hmm. it was the father who supported her and the mother who couldn't deal with it and didn't like it and kept uh, uh, dead-talking her, if you will. Right. And, and the... Yeah, and the name of this play is called Misha, correct? Misha, yes. correct. Mm -hmm. And for your listeners, Misha is the name, the nickname mm -hmm. that her father gave her growing up. That was their private name 
that he no longer called her her given name on her birth certificate that her mother named her was Michael. Mm-hmm. But he knew early on that she was not, as he said, I knew you were not a Michael. And so he developed this name, this nickname that there was there kind of secret between them. Uh, and his nickname was for her was Misha. So that's mm-hmm. the title of the play. Uh, and then this last play, which I'm currently working on right now, as I'm sitting here talking to you, rewriting, mm-hmm. deals with another issue. I didn't say my background. I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, in a funeral home. My family was in the funeral yeah. business. So I'm now writing a play about Black people and death and dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say to people all the time, there's no issue in America where race is not involved. And even in death and dying, race is involved. Mm-hmm. And I'll give an example in my play. And, and some of this is based upon my father and things that I saw growing up. Excuse me. I learned anatomy from my father, taking me back into the morgue, showing me autopsy bodies, mm-hmm. where he would show me the end where the bodies were laid open. The, chest cavity was laid open. This is the heart. This is the spleen. This is the liver. I didn't see it from books. I saw it on real real life. Cadavers. Wow. Okay? Now, people may not know, but back in the 40s, which is where my play is, this play is set, there were n- n- several black soldiers, especially in the South, who were beaten up and sometimes killed for having the audacity to wear their uniform in public. Wow. I mean, you served your country, but yet they would, what are you doing wearing it? You could go serve and maybe die in Europe or whatever, but Mm. you dare not come back and show that you, to wear that uniform. Because in their what kind of minds, I don't know what they were thinking. Maybe Mm -hmm. only white boys could wear the uniform, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but not black boy. But they certainly killed. And there, this is I'm not making this up, right? Because I've done my research. Of course, that there were black soul GIs killed Mm. coming back from France. Wow. Okay. Uh, So this play did, and one of the things I learned, my father, who was a mortician. And he says that one of the differences between black morticians and white morticians, especially back then, think about black, black people dying. Right. How when a, morti- a black mortician gets a body, quite often they didn't die peacefully in their sleep. Mm-hmm. They were lynched. Mm-hmm. They were murdered mm-hmm. uh, by beatings or whatever. So they would get bodies that were... Uh, just disformed, right? Disfigured, disfigured, right? Right. My father was good at remaking faces. Wow. He was a makeup artist and a sculptor. Mm. So he would get a the family would bring a picture of the deceased, and he would use that picture to reconstruct the face, so that when the and another thing about black and white. A lot of black families want open caskets. Mm-hmm. A lot of white families don't necessarily want open caskets. Right. Why do black people want open caskets? Well, this is a line from my play. Black people want to touch mama. They want to kiss mama goodbye. 
they want to they want to see mama before right. or whoever the deceased is but I use mama before mm-hmm. mama gets put in the ground they want to be able to touch him and say goodbye right right i remember growing up black some black people got so emotional that when they were lowering the casket in the ground we would have to sometimes restrain uh uh um children mm-hmm. from running to try to jump in the grave right right you know that's yeah. how deep this stuff can go of course and and i think that that is you know what why should we care about theater because we are it's these stories or it's these narratives or it's these things that are so important that you know we really have to we really have to care it's not right. just it's not just about theater like we're if we're talking about theater we're putting that to the side we're talking about the themes we're talking about the stories we're talking about just having some sort of human empathy some sympathy just being able to feel and really connect and really understand that it's not always about you it's always about right. it, it's you know it's always about everyone it's all about being inclusive it's all about understanding listening connecting right. all these things and so when i first like f- fell in love with theater, like really fell in love. I always grew up watching, you know, Disney movies and and just classic musicals mm-hmm. um, and things like that. That was already, of course, a given. And, and I definitely had that musicality or that theatricality in my life. But what really made me connect or really like decide that this is what I want to do, like 100%, like, I don't care if I'm going to be broke the rest of my life. Like, you know, like this is what it was. I went to go see a play. It was at the Actors Playhouse in Coral Gables Mm -hmm. um, on the Miracle Theater. And it was um, In the Heights. And so, you know, In the Heights, they just came out with the movie. But when the show first came out, it was, you know, something that, I that that was the first time that I truly saw myself right. on stage because it's exactly. these these Latino like American like Latino Americans that are a first generation that their parents immigrated from the countries that they came from and you know they are you know learning and surviving and having to deal with you know racism or just being right. able to you know still be connected somewhat to their origin their roots but also right. like try to blend into modern day society and you know just live with that and these kinds of things but I truly saw myself in that and I was like what you, people can make plays about this yeah and, and it, about me yes and so it's when you see yourself or you see these things that you know that have happened to you you were talking about this play that you're writing um which I think is absolutely fantastic there's a similar musical it's called fun home mm-hmm. And so it's also about, you know, someone who grew up in um, in a funeral home. So they're, the family owned a funeral home. And um, it was this young girl who later realized that she was gay. And she realized that her dad was having an affair with, her, with his mom because he was also gay. But no one talked about it or no one knew about it because it was so under wraps. And once he had passed away things started surfacing or things started, she was basically studying his life to see where things happen because they they have these underlying tones about mental health and and things like that, that were never spoken about because they were from such a small town. It was always very 
by the book and was never, you know, you go outside or you do something different. And so these stories or these plays just kind of push that narrative and kind of show that other side or the underlying layers like an onion that people don't always see and that we need to... Yeah, go I'm ahead. Sorry, what, what's the name of that play? I need to write that down because I need to read that play. It's called Fun Home. Fun Home. Okay. So funeral home, but like they oh, turn I see. Fun Home. Yeah. You so it, remember the author's name? It's, it's I think don't her name worry, is. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. I'll find it. Her name is Alice. Is. So originally it was a book that um so this woman wrote it. It's based on a true story. Right. So this woman wrote it. And it, it was kind of turned into like a comic. So you can right. pick it up in any bookstore. Right. And then when they adapted it into Broadway, it was something that they kept it true, like through and through. And it's just right. so amazing and so fantastic. That's Even fantastic. though it's very, it's very dark and it does have those moments, there's also these light moments. And it's just right. very similar to how life works. You always have these light and these dark moments and just kind of caring through and understanding, you know, why, why we are how we are and why we do the things that we do. So that's why we should care about theater, because at the end of the day, it also teaches you, you know, if you're an actor and you're on now on the side of the stage and you're working with props, you know, you, you carry yourself a little bit different there. You have a a deeper sentiment or deeper value of things that you're holding or things that you're moving on stage with. And the same thing with people, we're listening more, we're, you know, paying attention and truly being present in the moment. And so it's just all these different elements that really make you a better person, I think. Yeah, exactly. When you put it down to it. Theater can, theater has amazing power uh, and it can do amazing things. But, uh, you know, more we think about, uh, what's going on today, uh, I think theater is becoming even more and more relevant. I want mm-hmm. to put one thing out there for our listeners, uh, <laughs> the connection between theater and politics. Mm-hmm. If you look, whenever there are budget cuts being considered, especially in uh, school budgets, mm-hmm. the first thing that they think about cutting are the arts. Uh-huh which shows you where administration and education puts theater. Mm-hmm. But if you study, just like you, you see what theater has done for you personally. Right. And the fact that uh, you were able to get some training in school, but you probably, uh, did you go to much theater when you were in uh, um, high school or, or junior high school or whatever? Um, yeah. From school, so- from school, though, not private, not yourself. Right. Schools providing that for you. Yes. Yeah, so we, yeah, we would go see shows like The Nutcracker, and you know, okay. we would, and we would personally have to like do shows for like, uh, you know, Christmas or like Hispanic right. nights or things like that. So yeah. Right. But see what I'm saying, and that's great. Mm-hmm. But then, what happens after that in terms of the education? Right. right. Now you mentioned you went to see In the Heights. Mm-hmm. How when were how old were you then, or when were you? Where were you in your life at that point? I think I was I was a junior in high school. Junior in high school. Yeah. Well, you probably didn't know, and a lot of people still don't know, and maybe knowing now, that that was the first play that Lin Manuel won a Tony. Right. For. Yeah. Before he won the Tony for um, Hamilton. Right. So he's been a great musical theater person 
way before, and actually mm-hmm. before Hamilton. Right. And if you understand the connection between politics and theater, mm-hmm. when Vice President Pence went to see Hamilton on Broadway, the company came out at, after the show was over and talked to him mm-hmm. from the stage to him and the people in the audience. Mm-hmm. And they basically said, they didn't tell him to do this, but basically said, Mr. Vice President, what you see on the stage is the America of today. Mm-hmm. So we got a black man playing uh, um, a white, like uh, someone who was white. Right. Or like someone who was, you know, not right. like he was playing, like, playing Aaron Burr. He was yes. playing the vice president of the United States at that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, people may not know Hamilton was actually uh, an interracial in real life. He mm-hmm. wasn't white. All, he wasn't all white. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, and then more studying I'm doing, everybody that we think in history was white were not. Right. There's been a lot of mixing. Yeah. I think President Harrison, Warren uh, Harding, Warren Harding was interracial, but mm-hmm. not too many people know that. Right. So, Obama was not necessarily the first black president. I'll say that again. Obama was not the first black president. Wow. Chew on that for a bit. Not you, but... Yeah, no, yeah. No, totally. Um, Walter White. (laughs) Not the one that was on... What was that TV show that was so popular about... Uh, drugs about them, the chemistry teacher. Oh, yes, Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad. Mm -hmm. And the title character is Walter White. (laughs) Well, there was a Walter White way before that character. Mm -hmm. Do you know who he was, by the way? I I don't. Okay, do a little teaching for you and your listeners. Yes. Walter White was one of the first presidents of the NNACP. Wow. Walter White, (laughs) with the name, looked to the eye like a white man. Right. Um, His grandfather was, I think was William Henry Harrison, the 16th president of the United States. Mm -hmm. He had a liaison with some of his black slaves and servants and produced a woman who was the grandmother of this Walter White who became head of the NACP. Uh, you remember his name, Google him, Google pictures of him, and you can see and read about him and what he did. He used to help the NACP integrate places because he would go in and get served because they said he's white. I mean, not only his name, but he looks white. So he right. would get service even though he had more than a half black blood running through his veins okay and just so you guys see or you know hear um but you know like this is what like lowell does like he just has all these nuggets like all these like connecting pieces and then i think this goes into like the next question that i had for you it was just like what are some of the benefits from being involved in theater it's this it's being able to be like look i 
I saw this play or I learned about this or whatever it was. And, you know, you tie it into the player, vice versa. You you are able to make these real life connections where it's not so storyline or it's not so romanticized how some plays are. It is something that is real and it's tangible and you can make these real life understandings or these real life connections that you know are important and they matter and it's just so necessary to do yes i'll give you another piece of history that is in the back of my mind i i've now learned as a playwright i keep a little book with me and whenever i overhear a conversation some i jot something down because that might be a nugget for writing a new play totally and so i'm going to ask you another name have you ever heard of the name philip reed r-e-i-d i have Oh well, then can you tell? Do you remember who he was? Or I, I'm I'm not sure, and I might okay, be that's completely okay. I might be completely wrong. Is he an actor? No, 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 no. Okay, okay. Well, let me tell you who Philip Reed is. Our Capitol was attacked on January six, right? Oh the yes, Capitol building. And whenever you see, I'm sure most of you can picture in your mind that dome of the Capitol building. Mm-hmm. And if you also in your mind, there's a big there's a statue on top of that Capitol Dome. Can you see that picture in your head? Mm-hmm. That statue is up there because of this man. I'm telling his name was Philip Reed. Mm. Now, who was Philip Reed? He was a slave. Wow. Who was a master craftsman. And he was the only one at the time when they were building the Capitol had the know-how and the wherewithal to get that heavy piece of stone up there and uh, attached securely to the Capitol Dome, where it's been for however long the Capitol's been there. Exactly. And the irony of it is, you know what the title of that statue is? It is called the Statue of Freedom. Mm. Now think about the irony. How did the Statue of Freedom get on top of the Capitol? That is one of the symbols of our democracy, a slave. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, that's, that's something that, you know, it was when people were talking about when, when the Capitol was attacked, it was like, this is a place, like, this was built by Americans and things like that. Yeah, it was built by slaves. It was built right. by, you know, these just, people. Just about every uh, statue, every one thing that you go, when you go to, to D.C. to mm-hmm. look at and even not even, but especially the White House yeah. is built by slaves. Right. When we talk about to understand this whole thing about reparations, which is a big controversy, mm-hmm. America, America's infrastructure that we're now getting this bill now that Biden is bringing forth, try to build up, um, uh, redo Americans' infrastructure, but most of that original infrastructure was built by slave labor. In other words, America right. got lots of free labor. Mm-hmm. If you look at a building today and you look at the budget for building a building, the majority of what it costs is not the materials, but it is the labor. Exactly. So when you think about that, America got so much free free labor. Mm-hmm. Free, not paying a dime in it, free. And um, so it's knowing that kind of stuff and understanding it and maybe letting it get in your soul that maybe it might change your attitudes, your yeah. beliefs, how you see things, how you see yourself. Mm-hmm. 
that's that's big that's big how you see yourself i i love that i think it's it's huge because at the end of the day like whenever you finish watching a movie or you finish watching a play you're you go back and you're just kind of like sitting with it and you're just kind of like being like okay did i resonate with this did that did i like that play did i hate that play why did i like it why did i hate it why did i love it so uh, yeah you do a lot of self-reflecting when you when you watch plays and when you're involved in theater and some of the self some of the self-reflecting to do self-reflection period is very uh it becomes very emotional and very upsetting yeah to have to really take a look at yourself Mm mm-hmm uh, which is what a lot of people I was I was trained. I have a master's degree in psychology before I went into theater. Mm-hmm. So I know a little bit about how people, how our minds work and our emotions, etc. Mm-hmm. And a lot of therapy. If you go to therapy, psychology, there's psychology. A lot of what you do in therapy is do some self-analysis, looking into you. Yeah. Why do I do what I do? Why do I keep repeating the same behavior over and over? Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm sure you've heard that definition of insanity. Insanity is when you keep repeating the same action over and over, expecting a different result. Mm. And that is one definition of being insane. It is insane to walk out in front of a car, get hit, maybe survive, you know, get bones, and then go step out in front of a car again? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wait a minute. Didn't you think about what happened to you before? Exactly. Right. Why are you doing the same crazy stuff? You would say, you're crazy mm-hmm. for stepping out in front of Well, that's an example of what I mean by uh, uh, repeating the same behavior, expecting a different result. Right. Definition of insanity. Yeah, and if Amer- Americans, I mean, not just Americans, everyone, humans, oh, we, yeah. just, we do human, that all the time. It's human beings. Of course, now that we're open to the world more and more now because of social media and technology, mm-hmm. we can see real time. When I grew up, to know what was going over on over right now in Afghanistan, I would have to wait right. two or three days before mm-hmm. we would get pictures. Now you mm-hmm. see it real time while it's happening. Right. Um, there's an example that we're the problem we're in right now, getting out of Afghanistan, and uh, President Biden is in lots of hot water right now. Yes. In the South. Well, how did we get there in the first place? Mm-hmm. Why is some of the stuff, if you watch news, some of this, yes, uh, I will put itself out there. I voted for Biden. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I will criticize him. I'm not like of course supported the I, I feel, the I feel like president. we should always we should always be holding, you know, these people accountable. We should right. always be like at the end of the day, yeah, okay, we could have voted for him, we could have not voted for him. We could love him, we could hate him. At the end of the day, it's just about how are we keeping them accountable and how are we doing what's best for the country and for the people of the country. Right. And when I think about it, I'm not in government. I don't mean to say that if I was in one of these positions, uh, I would know what to do per se. Exactly. One thing I do know that I've watched is quite often our government 
may know what to do, but they mm-hmm. spend very little time, effort, or money on how to do it. Right. Example, we pulled out of Afghanistan, but right now I'm hearing news stories. The people that are getting out and are landing here in America, they haven't really prepared for where they're going to stay or feed them. Mm. So these people are landing from Afghanistan, that long flight, probably not having eaten anything. Mm. And they're here now almost being Americans and Afghanis being caged together somewhat right? with no food. Well, That's how, wild. We're in the, I don't have to be that smart to say, well, we're going to bring these people over. We maybe plan where we're going to house them and how we're going to feed them. Mm-hmm. It don't take too much thinking. No. Well, that's not happening. So it's, I say, and it happens. Is- unfortunately, it happens so often with so many different different types of scenarios where right. they, it's these solutions. But do they want to invest the money? Do they want to invest the labor? Do they want to invest, you know, well, look, all of these different things to to just make things happen? I don't know exactly how much, but I know whatever it would cost to have. Oh, the other thing they don't have is air conditioning. So mm-hmm. these people are coming back to states and places where they are cramped together, no food, and hot. Yeah. Okay? So mm-hmm. I'm saying, just like you said, how much money would it take to provide how, uh, at least temporary housing and food for these people? It's certainly America. <laughs> you, if you yeah. think, what do we do? We don't have mm-hmm. money. Where does the money come from? We print it. Yeah. So you can, you're printing enough money. We're printing trillions of dollars now. I don't think we need to uh, print a a trillion dollars to house the people that. To just make, right, to just make something happen. I to make this 100% agree. You see, It's, it's crazy, but you know, at the end of the day, this is where you know, theater can come in and can exactly. kind of, you know, change that or kind of move people because that's what theater does. It moves right. people, it compels people to do certain things or to feel certain kinds of ways. So you could feel as passionate about it as this, or, you know, if you're not really involved in theater or in politics, this goes completely over your head. Right. And so the same thing goes for a lot of different themes when you're talking about theater or you're talking about, you know, real life. We choose to to listen to what we want to listen to. We choose what we want to see and what we want to watch. And so with theater, it's just kind of, again, that safe space where we can address these topics or address these themes and kind of come up with a solution or kind Mm -hmm. of come up with something that will make things better. And so that kind of goes into my last question with, how how does theater you know so how did theater change your life and how do you think it could change other people's lives well first of all i thought about that question too because she sent it to me Mm -hmm. theater changed my life first of all if you knew me when i was in grade school i was extremely shy very different from what you hear on this podcast you can tell (laughs) i'm no longer shy you knew (laughs) when you had me as a teacher Mm-hmm. There was the thing shy about me. No. Nope. So I can say one thing theater did for me, it brought me out of my shell. I will also, I don't know whether I told you this when you were my student, I may have, uh, the class, that the first play I ever did, did I, do you remember that story at all? I, I don't think so. Okay. The first play I ever did was when I was in nursery school. 
and we were going to do a reenactment of Goldilocks, the fairy tale, Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Mm -hmm. You know that story. Mm -hmm. Well, everybody, you know, we were all uh, uh, nursing school and a lot of kids were, I mean, we could be rambunctious, but then to stand up in front of people, everybody would get very shy, you know. Right. And so I'm the kind of person, even though I'm shy, I get very annoyed with people not uh, uh, getting involved, so to speak. So some, even though I was shy, trying to get who's going to play Goldilocks. Well, you can imagine the end of this story. Guess who's going to play Goldilocks? <laughs> You're like, hello, people, get it together. No one's going to do it. Fine, I will. Exactly. Now, I want to tell this story in kind of detail. So here I am playing Goldilocks. Now, I'm a black kid. No, I'm, I, I can only imagine in the, in the era and like, you know, just the setting and the time to just be like, that's who's playing Goldilocks. It was very, you know, envelope this in, pushing. Right. This is in the early 50s. Yes. Okay. And so I say to my classes, the first role I ever did, I was in drag. Yes. <laughs> I mean, talk about a true pioneer in theater, like this man that we have right here. But I like, had that's no amazing. I had no idea what this was going to do. Right. Now, you can imagine my black father, 1950, <laughs> no son of mine is going to get up in front of people in a dress. Right. And if you know anything about black culture, the strength of black women, mm. my grandmother, my father's name was Samuel. She said, shut up, Samuel. <laughs> <laughs> and she, that was the time when women, she sewed. So she went and got a pattern and made my dress. That is so they amazing. also put a, what was called a fall, a hair piece on me. For mm-hmm. the long hair. Mm-hmm. And I did. And of course, being, I was maybe five, six years old, testosterone hadn't hit my vocal cords. Of so course. Who's that sleeping in my bed? Oh. <laughs> no, truly, like this is probably like the best Goldilocks to ever live. So, yeah, gold, a black Goldilocks. Yes. Have, they, what they didn't do, they didn't give me a blonde wig. It was a black wig, but it would have been probably even more. Look, fitting. just just how Hamilton is now including, you know, these black actors and portraying them as certain things. You were doing it in the fifties, so exactly. you know that just that just comes to show that. You know, theater is truly timeless and just carries through. I want to finish the the end of the story. Of course. So when it came for the curtain call, they said, well, come out. You can take off your wig or your fall and take your bow. (laughs) Well, I did that. And when I did that, there was complete silence. And you've probably seen this in movies. Mm. And I was for a moment, I panicked and I was devastated. I re- Now, this is almost 70 years ago, but I right. remember it like it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. I panicked up there and was saying to myself, oh, they didn't like me. I was bad. I was just downing myself. And then all of a sudden, there was this swelling of applause. They didn't, I guess I was so convincing that they didn't realize I was a boy. Right. So they were in 1950s, all these black parents, because there was nobody white in the the Uh audience, Uh were applauding a black boy being able to portray a girl. Wow. 
Now I had I didn't know anything about homosexuality, any mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't on my radar at all. Right, right. And now I think about it when I put it in those terms, a group of black parents applauding a black boy for portraying a white girl. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Think about that. No, it's it's truly, <laughs> truly. Uh, so you're talking about life changing, yes. changing your attitudes and the way you see things. Look at sexuality differently, mm-hmm. gender differently, mm-hmm. being black differently, right. being white differently. Right. What we could do, uh, what we were told we couldn't do, but realize mm-hmm. what we could do. Right. And so theaters made me stand up uh, and say what I feel and what I think. From Like I just earlier, sometimes I censor myself because I can get raw sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I put it, sometimes I can put it down, uh, like they say, keeping it 100. Right. I'm able to keep it 100. So I'm going to use, <laughs> so these MFs, trying to tell me you, we, we get we get cursed on here it's okay the, <laughs> the, the the listeners have heard far worse so we can curse on here so I'm still gonna say these MFs who tell me how <laughs> superior America is yeah America has some superior and is good at certain things mm-hmm. but when you look at the history like I talked about Philip Reed right. why is why why the where does some of that superiority come from it doesn't come from being white right a lot of our superiority comes from the things that black people did for this country. Mm-hmm. So this term white superiority, that's bullshit. Yeah. You I know? agree. 100%. And then I'm reading, uh, just going back a little bit, I know we're in our time, but I'm now finding out historically how much that tra- being transgender was way back in history. Yeah. The transgender was in Africa. Yeah. Where we get these ads, oh, that's a new thing in America. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, no. When you begin to study that topic, it ain't new. Yeah. As my father used to say, and I'm going to end because I talked about my father, who eventually gave in and became more supportive. But my father used to say to me, son, meaning S-O-N, there's nothing new under the sun, S-U-N. <laughs> And I look at that and I say, yeah, things I think like rappers right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, people were rapping back in the 60s, way before rap became uh, the uh, uh, young poets. For example. Yeah. There's yeah. groups from way. So even rapping is not new. And if you go to Africa and you look at some of the dance, for instance, twerking. Yeah, they've been, they've been twerking in Africa, oh, and it's a 100%. natural dance and has nothing to do with shaking your booty in terms of sexuality. Yes, so twerking didn't start in the hip hop generation. Exactly, and that's why this this is why they I get perturbed when people say, "Oh well, we're doing something new. You ain't doing nothing new. Nothing you just, new. You're just reworking it and trying exactly. to exactly. But you're really yeah. not inventing anything. Exactly. When you invent something." come to me and I'll be glad to say, oh, wow, that is really new. Right. ain't too much really new going on. I agree. And so, you know, I just think that theater has has just so much power and so much, like, 
you know depth and and the the just what it holds like right. really and really carries for people in any way that we were doing it like since the beginning of time like this is like and th that it's continued to be carried right. through and it's still an art and that there's still right. so much left that is uncovered you know right. it's something that is always going to be evolving and something that is always going to be there and i just think about it like that and and as me being an artist myself how there's just always going to be some new way to evolve or just continue to grow with it and that's the right. beauty of theater and that's you know where it really has changed me and i've had some of my like milestones in my life where i look back and i'm just like wow that was like one of like the top moments in my life and yeah. that other moment was like another top moment in my life and it just being there just being exposed to that is something that you know has just really changed the game right and I well, think that it's always doing that one last thing I want to say before we close mm -hmm. um, to your listeners one of the things I'm about right now is this conversation we've had has been great yeah but I want to get very specific I'm about right now, I'm putting a lot of energy to making people understand that there is great theater to be seen and had in Miami, mm -hmm. in the Miami area. You do not have to necessarily go to Broadway Correct. to see good theater. Yep. So I'm about making theater in Miami. I want to put a plug in for uh, Miami, uh, Main Street Players, which is out at uh, in Miami Lakes, mm -hmm. to go see the play that's going... It finishes this weekend. Tickets are $20. Play called Wolf and Badger. I also want to mention the name of the M Ensemble, which is the oldest surviving black theater group in South Florida. Wow. They've been in business for over 40 years doing plays. I've directed That's for them. I've directed seven August Wilson's Seven Guitars. They do plays mainly related to uh, the black community, but are in terms of the topics, they don't limit the audience, of course, but in fact, everybody could go there and learn something about black culture by the plays they put on. I also want to say that I'm involved with a group called One Hope Wine. And what hope reason it's selling wine is uh, um, Napa Valley, award-winning Napa Valley wines. So the reason I got involved with it, they give back. So 10% mm -hmm. of every bottle of wine they sell goes to some charity. So I'm developing ways that people can buy wine and support theater in Miami. That's amazing. So look up One Hope Wine. Look up my name. Contact me. If you have a, a, if you have a charity, I can set up a link for you to uh, have people buy wine and have some of the money they uh, spend on wine to go to your charity. It has to be a 501c company. Mm-hmm. But if you have a 501c, you can have people buy wine and contribute to your theater company. That's definitely a cause I can get behind. So I'm, I'm going to send that to you probably when we see yeah. But Absolutely. I'm just putting out there, if people remember to Google One Hope Wine. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And, and so they, they have some charities they normally they give back to, but I can set up specific ones. Mm -hmm. I have a grandson who is uh, autistic. I've set mm. up one for the school in New Jersey that he goes to to give money back to that school. Wow. And uh, so I can set him up for any organization who has a 501c status. 
Awesome. 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 Well, I'm thank funny. you. Yeah, yes, I'm done. <laughs> no, no, no. You're good. No, thank you so much. Like for just everything, for sharing all these amazing stories and for really just sharing the way that you view, you know, theater and, and everything else. I think it's so important and so crucial to have these conversations and for people to listen in and to just, you know, kind of, I hope my, my hope and, you know, by the end of this episode, if they listened the entire way through, is just for them to really challenge themselves to view the world differently or to view theater differently and to be more involved in theater because you, you can never get enough. And, you know, there's always so much to learn. And so to just be compelled to, to challenge themselves in a way that is going to get them out of their comfort zone, but that it's going to be completely amazing and completely life-changing. I want to say to your listeners, the next podcast, they need to ask you to sing something for them. (laughs) I'm serious, because they need to hear, I didn't know. I heard one of your posts, you were singing about the, the song you sang uh, to your grandmother at her. Right, time. right. And it's 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 actually from In the Heights. It's a song from In the Heights. Exactly. But when you were in acting class, I never heard you sing. Right. I don't remember. Right. And I said, I never knew he had that voice in there. Yeah, so that's, that's there. what I'm saying. <laughs> don't, don't. Don't hide that. Let people know you got that. Oh, a thousand percent. I don't. I don't. It's definitely there. So it's not going anywhere. Great. Yes. Well, thank you so much for, again, for taking the time to hop on this episode and to share so many amazing things. You are truly an amazing person and everyone needs to know who you are. And hopefully, you know, you can continue to do amazing things. And hopefully your plays are in production very soon so everyone can go ahead and see really what we've been talking about go see it in person and see the magic that you have created and that you know playwrights all over the world do can i leave you and your listeners with my email address absolutely i just if anybody wants to contact me for any reason it's l e w n i n e the numeral 10 at gmail.com Awesome. And I'll go ahead and I'll add it in the description so that way people Great. can can find well, it easier. In case anybody wants to contact me for any reason, I'm always hoping to talk to people. Perfect. Awesome. 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 Well, thank you again. Thank you so much for tuning in. This has been another amazing episode of Confessions with the Miami God. And until next time, where we reconvene at the scene. <laughs>